So as we look at these two verses this morning, I want you to have one sort of big metaphor in your minds. And here's the image or the metaphor that I want to govern our whole talk today. Imagine you have a garden in your backyard, say, uh, and the garden is full of vegetables and flowers and plants, etc. And it's beautiful and it's potentially very, very fruitful. And, and the question I want you to think about is this. What is needed in order for the garden to produce and for the garden to grow? Well, one thing that's needed, or a few things that are needed, are sunlight and water, right? Um, but also, you're going to have to tend the garden. You're going to have to get out there on your hands and knees and pull weeds. You're going to have to plant seeds. You're going to have to prune plants and flowers. You're going to have to move earth from here to there and on and on and on. And you can do all of that, and the garden still won't grow without sunlight and water, right? But even if there is sunlight and water, in order for the garden to be as fruitful as it could be, you need to go out and work and till the soil and work on the garden. So both the sunlight and the water, which we don't have the power to provide, and our own efforts, our own work in the garden are necessary things for the garden to reach its full, fruitful potential. That image illustrates for us the relationship that Paul is describing in these two verses in Philippians, two very important verses. The relationship that he's focused on is the relationship between God's work in our lives and our own work in our lives in the Christian life. And that's a very important idea for us to think about as we continue to study Philippians and as we think about how we are to be faithful citizens of Jesus's kingdom in a secular age. Now, we've been going through this letter verse by verse, and this part of chapter two is sort of the main exhortation section of the letter. It's the main part of the letter where Paul is calling believers in Jesus to live in a certain way and to believe certain things. And we've just come out in verses 5 through 11 of one of the highlights of all of the New Testament where Paul has written about the humility of Jesus and his subsequent exaltation as a result of his resurrection from the dead. And now he's kind of reached this mountain peak in his writing, talking about the glory and the grace and the love of God shown to sinners in Jesus's death and resurrection. And now what he does in these next couple of verses is begin to apply that truth. And if you'll notice in verse 12, the first word is therefore. In other words, in light of everything that I've just said about Jesus, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to believe. Here's how we are to live if we believe these things to be true. And so that's where we're headed this morning for a couple of minutes. And I want to summarize this point like this. Our good works are a result of God's good work. That's the main idea. Our good works are a result of God's good work. And so we're going to split that sentence into two parts. Our good works and God's good work as we think about Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 for a couple of minutes. So first, let's look at what Paul says about our good works. Look at verse 12 again. And as I just mentioned, here he starts a new paragraph and he says, Therefore, in light of everything I've just written about Jesus Christ, everyone who follows Jesus should live a life that is driven by Jesus' sacrificial work for us. And what does that mean? Well, verse 12, he says, that means obeying. An unpopular word in our culture, but one that Paul uses unhesitatingly. Obeying, and as he says in verse 12, work working out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. And so here's the thing. The gospel, the news of what has happened in history, 
in Jesus's life and death and resurrection and ascension, that gospel calls those who believe the news to obedience, to orient their lives, everything about their lives around that gospel reality. And it's important for each of us to see how strongly Paul puts this here. I mean, look at what he says. He says, work out command, work out your own salvation. In other words, if we're followers of Christ, our conduct, our obedience, our lifestyles as the people of God are a part of the work of salvation in our lives. Now, that is very easily misunderstood. If you grew up in a church in the 80s or 90s, like I did, or before that, um, you probably, part of your discipleship was Bible memorization, which is a really, really good thing. But one of the potential hazards of scripture memory is that you can memorize verses in isolation from the context in which they were written. And I memorized, and I'm sure some of you memorized, Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But if you just take that verse in isolation from everything around it, the potential for misunderstanding heightens significantly. After all, don't we here in particular constantly talk about how salvation is a gift? It's a gift from God. It's not something we work out or work for. It's something that God gives freely by his grace. Yes, (laughs) we do talk. If you're thinking, wait, don't we talk about that? Yes, you're right. You've been listening. Well done. We talk about that all the time. That's kind of the core around which this whole church exists. And so... What is Paul saying here? It will help to understand some of the key words of the Bible. Some of the key words that Scripture uses when it refers to the broad category of salvation. Our salvation from death and sin and hell. One word is justification. Justification. That's a term that means to be declared righteous by God through the righteousness of Jesus given to us freely that we receive by faith. Okay? So Paul, in Romans chapter 4, for example, writes this, To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So our work, our effort, has absolutely nothing to do with our justification, with our being declared by God to be righteous. Justification is a one-time A one-time divine immediate act of God in which all of us are completely passive. That is, we simply receive God's declaration of righteousness by faith. It's like we're a cup that just receives water or coffee. God does the pouring. We're passive recipients in justification. That's a part of our salvation. But the Bible says that another part of our salvation is defined by another word called sanctification. So there's justification and there's sanctification. The word sanctification, you might detect in there the word sanctus is the Latin word for holy. So sanctification is to be made holy. And it's different from justification. And it's different in that it is not a one-time act. And it's different in that you and I who are following Jesus play a role in our sanctification. Whereas in justification, we're completely passive. And the point is, both justification and sanctification come to us through our faith connection with Jesus and are a part of the bigger picture of salvation. And what Paul's saying in Philippians 2.12, when he says, work out your own salvation, is a reference to the sanctification part 
of our salvation and not to the justification part of our salvation. So there's your theology lesson for the day, but here's the point, okay? The point is, as a result of what Jesus has done for sinners, Christians are responsible to work, to honor, and obey God in their daily lives. Very simply, when the Bible gives us commandments, we really do need to obey them. (laughs) That's a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We must expend effort. We must try to follow Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus himself talks about this all the time. For example, in one of his parables, the parable of the talents, which you can read in Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story. And in the story, he talks about um, a, a landowner who gives to three different men, three different sums of money or three different talents. He gives one man 10 talents and another man five talents and another man one talent. And he says, make this money work for my kingdom, for my company, for my purposes. And I'm going to go on a big trip. And when I come back, I'll see how you've done. Right. And so Jesus tells the story and the guy who has 10 talents puts the money to work and he makes 10 more. The guy who has five talents puts the money to work. He makes five more so that he has 10. But the guy who has one talent, you remember what he does? He puts that talent under his pillow and just lets it sit there. He doesn't do anything with it because he's afraid that if he takes a risk and things go badly, the master's going to really punish him because he says, you're a severe master. And so the, the landowner comes back, the head of the company comes back and he says, okay, let's see what you've done. And the guy comes with 20 talents. The guy comes with 10 talents. And then another guy comes with still the one talent and says, listen, master, I knew that it was going to be really bad for me if I worked for this and it didn't go well for me. So I just stuck it under my pillow. And what does the landlord do? He gives blessing to the two men that went to work for the kingdom. But to the third man, he says, get away from me. And that among many other stories that Jesus tells is an example of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Part of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God is that we endeavor to work and to risk and to expend effort to expand and broaden God's kingdom and to grow in holiness and conformity to Jesus in our own lives. The kingdom of God is for worker bees. One theologian writes this, faith in Christ is ultimately expressed in obedience to Christ, not in the sense of following the rules, but of coming totally under his lordship of being devoted completely to him. And so just think with me about this for one more second. Very basically, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live the Christian life? Well, Paul's saying here that it means obedience. And so what does that look like practically? There's many things that I as a pastor could say to you, but just a couple of basic things that must be happening in your life. If you are going to work out your own salvation, if you're going to grow in holiness, if you're going to be a part of sanctification, one thing is that you must be involved in community. You must be involved in the body of Christ. That verb there, work out, is plural. That is, Paul is not just writing to me or to you in isolation. He's writing to us. He's writing to we. And part of the point is that sanctification, our growth and holiness, our working out our salvation inevitably involves each other. You know, the older I get, the more I think that it is really impossible on a functional, practical level to grow 
when you're by yourself. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, elsewhere, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of God. In other words, the way we obey God, the way we fulfill God's law is by helping one another out. It's by being involved in each other's lives. Paul assumes there that there's going to be burdens that we need each other's help in. What burdens do you have? Are you trying to bear them alone? You can't do it. That's part of what the scriptures tell us. One way that you can grow, even in your heavy burdens, is by letting others in Jesus' body, the church, help you. By becoming a part of a community of humble care. And so practically, we'd love for you to get involved in our small group ministry at Christ Church. That's the main way we try to do that. Come to the party tonight. If nothing else, you'll just get to know some people and enjoy one another's company. We develop holiness and character in Jesus as we spend time together and work together. Community. One other thing that will help us grow, that will help us work out our own salvation. Prayer. Prayer is faith expressed in words. It's the main way we express dependence upon God. And prayer is essential to our growth, to our working out our own salvation. One of my favorite writers, Henri Nguyen, uh, writes this, Prayer is the act by which we divest ourselves of all false belongings and become free to belong to God and God alone. Prayer is the way that we say, I need to get rid of everything else that's hindering me and remember and realize that I belong to God. And by the way, that's part of the reason when we try to pray, we find so much inner resistance. Or is that just me? Does anybody else try to pray and, you know, two minutes later you're checking Twitter or you're asleep or you're doing something else or your mind's wandering? Part of the reason you experience so much resistance in your prayer life is because when you're praying, you're moving closer to God, who is the source of all of our lives. And as you move closer to God, you also realize, usually unconsciously, that the closer we come to God, the stronger will be God's demand that we let go of the many comfortable structures that we have built around ourselves to keep us safe and secure. Prayer is a radical thing because it requires us to criticize our whole way of being in the world. It requires us to lay down our old selves and to accept our new self, which is Christ. Now, this isn't a sermon on prayer, but Suffice it to say for now that prayer is one of the main ways in which we work out our own salvation. And interestingly enough, praying in community to combine those two practical points is the way that you will grow and develop your own spiritual prayer muscles. So Paul writes then about our good work. We are to work out our salvation. We're to do it with fear and trembling, trusting and fearing God in the good sense of fear and not the bad sense of fear. So the Spirit of God speaking calls us to obey through these verses. But then, as Paul often does in his writing, he quickly corrects a potential misunderstanding. And you see that in verse 13. What is the potential misunderstanding? Well, I talked about it for a minute, a minute just a second ago. The potential misunderstanding to just verse 12, work out your own salvation, is that salvation is a self-help exercise. That's the potential misunderstanding. Verse 12 teaches that we have a role to play in our own sanctification. But the misunderstanding, potentially, is that verse 12 teaches that salvation can be earned 
and we are to work toward it. But that's not what this verse is teaching or any part of the Bible teaches. I mean, for one thing, look at the actual language itself. Notice what Paul doesn't write. Paul does not say work at your salvation, right? Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work towards your salvation. Paul says work out. Work out your salvation. And now in verse 13, he says that no one can work out his or her salvation unless God has already worked it in. You with me? I see a few nods, so I'll say yes, you're with me. So look at the four there in verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, that's a really strong connecting word, and what it does is explain a causal relationship. In other words, our good works, verse 12, result from and are caused by God's good work, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Recall the garden illustration that we began with. You can tend and prune and sow seed in your garden until your hands bleed, until your sweat piles up. But without the sun and without rain, your garden will not grow. And I want you to look at verse 13 just for a couple of minutes a little bit more carefully with me. What precisely is the work that God does in us that causes us to work out our own salvation? Well, Paul tells us two things. Look there. It is God who works in you both, first, to will. Both to will. What does that mean? That is, God's work in us is actually to first change and conform our wills. And our wills are the control tower of our lives. The control tower of our hearts. Practically, Listen, I want you to listen. Practically, here's what that means for every single one of us. None of us will ever do things to please God and honor God and love other people without our wills being changed by God first. Apart from the work of God in our hearts through Jesus Christ, we are not free to please God. Because we do not want to please God. Now, some of you might reply to this. What do you mean, Pastor? Are you telling me I don't have free will? you telling me I can't do whatever I want? Yes. That is what I'm telling you. Now, you have free will in some respects. I mean, you have free will to decide certain things, but you don't have free will to decide all things. You can decide whether you will go to work. Well, tomorrow's a holiday. Let's say Tuesday. You can decide whether you'll go to work Tuesday morning or not. That's your choice. You can decide whether to wear red socks, blue socks, or no socks tomorrow. You can decide whether you want to have, you know, a, a hamburger or Thai food for lunch today. But you cannot exercise free will in anything that involves your spiritual capabilities. And for that matter, you can't exercise free will in anything that involves physical or intellectual capabilities. Listen, you don't have the free will to raise your IQ by 50 points. You don't have the free will to play in the NBA. I really, really want to. I mean, I really will desire with every ounce of my being to play for the Spurs. But R.C. Buford has not called me. Popovich has not left a message on my cell phone. 
no matter how much I want it, I just don't have the ability. We don't have free will in physical capabilities or intellectual capabilities, and it's also true that we don't have free will when it comes to our spiritual capabilities. That's what the Bible teaches. You can't decide by your own free will to choose to love and to serve God. Adam, our first parent, had that free will in the garden, as did did Eve. And they chose freely not to obey God. And because of that, his free will was restricted and hardened, as well as the free will of all of his children. Here's an example or an illustration. Think about it this way. Imagine that you're standing on the edge of a of a really deep, slippery mud pit, you know, 25 feet down. And on the edge of that mud pit, you have free will. (laughs) You can either stay on the bank or you can jump in. You have the choice. But once you jump in, your free will is lost as far as getting out of that pit is concerned. You, You can try to, okay, let's put it, you, you have the free will to walk around the bottom of the pit or to sit down in the bottom of the pit. You have free will to try to scramble up the side or just sort of philosophically accept your fate as a stoic. You have the free will to cry out for help or to be silent, but you have given up the free will to be on the edge of the bank again. Or to use our governing, our governing image, you have as much hope of choosing by your own free will to please God without God's help as the garden has of growing merely by us planting seeds with no sun and no water. That's why this truth is so glorious. This truth and the whole scriptures emphasize the overwhelming, sovereign grace of God in saving us. In the gospel, God is the one who saves. And one of the first ways he begins that work is by changing what we want. By giving us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to work out our own salvation. That's what Paul says when he says God works in us both to will I mean, Jesus wasn't joking when he said in John 15 that apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Jesus isn't like exaggerating there. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 6, no one, Jesus says, can come to the Father except unless the one who sent me draws him. John 1, we are given new birth, not by blood or not by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The reason that we do good works is because God has worked in us to will. God works in us both to will and, secondly, to work. So he changes our wills by his grace sovereignly through the irresistible movement of the Spirit. And he gives us new identities. He gives us new birth. He gives us new affections and new desires by his grace. And then, Paul says, he also empowers our actual good works. And this is where the garden analogy breaks down a little bit. What Paul says is that we must go out and tend the garden, so to speak, trusting that the sun and the water will come and give growth. But now Paul is saying that even our desires and even our actual efforts to tend the garden come from God as well. It's still us who do it. We are responsible. Our actions do have meaning and consequences. When we obey God, we will experience his blessings. And when we disobey God, we will experience his fatherly correction as a result of our foolishness and selfishness. All of that is true. But God is underneath and around it all. He is working in our wills and in our actual works. 
That's powerful stuff, folks. I mean, just let's think about, let me just give you an anecdote. Because I was thinking about this this week, and I thought about my own life. I mean, do you remember what it was like? If you're a Christian in here this morning, do you remember what it was like before you were a Christian? Some of you do. Some of you, by God's grace, can't remember when you weren't a Christian, and we praise Jesus for that. I hope that's my kid's story. But some of you remember what it was like before you were a Christian, or some of you remember what it was like when you thought you were a Christian, but you weren't really in any serious way pursuing Jesus. And, and I was thinking about that in my own life, and I remember um, my first year in college, I think I might have been a Christian. I wasn't sure. I think I probably was, but I didn't care about obeying God. I didn't care about working out my own salvation. I'll tell you what I cared about, girls. I cared about girls at Baylor and meeting them. I cared about having fun. I cared about doing what I wanted when I woke up, which is why my grades were pretty bad that first year. And then the summer in between my first and second year at Baylor, I read the Bible with my dad, and God's Spirit awoke, he woke me up to the grace of God in the gospel. And I went back my second year, and I was different. I had different desires. I didn't want to get hammered with my friends anymore. I didn't want to just meet girls. I wanted to go to Bible studies. I wanted to share the gospel with friends. I wanted to talk about the scriptures and about theology. I was different. My will, my desires, they had changed. And that was the Holy Spirit working in my life. He was working in me both to will and to work so that I was more and more working out my own salvation. You likely have had similar experiences. At one time, you didn't want to go to church. You didn't ever pray. You might still be bad at prayer, but you remember a time when you didn't even think about prayer ever. You had no desire for Christian friendships. Your interests were only for money or for hobbies or for pleasure, and you were wrapped up. You were wrapped up in all kinds of addictions and sexual immorality and unhealthy relationships and lies and greed and brokenness. That's who we were. And then the Holy Spirit of God brought us to life. Jesus saved you. He changed your will, and because of that, he changed your lifestyle. Now, it's always a process for us. We're all still in process, but we can look back and understand as we're following Jesus in retrospect of how it was all of God. That's the way God works. He pursues us and he captures us with his love and his grace, no matter how far gone we may be, no matter how dark our path has become. And once God rescues us, we find ourselves to be different people with new passions and desires and relationships. It's glorious. It's great. And look at what Paul says, just to wrap it up. He concludes that God does this work in us, both to will and to work, and he does it for, here's why, for his good pleasure. What does that mean? Here's what that means. I love this. Here's what it means. God does all of the reconciling and redeeming work in our lives that he does to bring us to himself and to give us new hearts and to change our affections and to cause us to want to obey and to empower us to do good works. He does all of that because he's good. Because he's a good God who delights in doing good. He saves and he secures and he sanctifies us because that is in accord with his kind and merciful character. God is good and God loves to do those sorts of things with people. God is pleased to do good for you. God wants to save people. 
God wants to help you right now. God wants to change you. God wants to encourage you. No matter what happened to you this week, no matter what terrible news you've received, no matter how far away from him you feel you are, you might feel like God has left you. You might feel like God doesn't care. You might feel empty, broken, hollow, and alone. But God's good pleasure is to pursue you with his love. God's good pleasure is to rescue you out of your darkness, out of the depths of your own wounds and brokenness, out of your sin, because that is the kind of person that God is. That's why he humbled himself in Jesus, even to death, and took the form of a servant. He does it because that's what he's like. It's his good pleasure to save. It's his good pleasure to rescue. And it's his good pleasure to take those whom he has rescued and more and more enable them to work out, to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. It's just what he does. So what Paul is saying is this, you should, you should and I should, we should be grateful that God is like this. The only God, the real God, is this kind of God. He's good. He's happy to help. He's at work before we are. He starts the change, and he asks us to participate with him in a relationship. Now, you might not believe that right now because this week has been the week of hell. You might, you might think that I am just spouting religious maxims like some sort of crazy person disconnected from the reality of this world. And I can't convince you that that's not true, but the Holy Spirit can. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ right now would be at work in each of our lives, helping us, changing our desires and our wills so that we will see that this is what the real world and the real God is like. Because one day, one day each of our gardens will be full of beauty and life. There will be no weeds there will be no mosquitoes. Surely there won't be mosquitoes in heaven, right? Um, we have a role to play in this, God says. We get to go out and tend the garden. We seek to obey. We pray and we worship and we serve and we care for each other. But God is the one who is going to sustain it and complete it because he is the one who started it, you see. Remember chapter 1 of Philippians. The one who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. And the reason we see now is because that is his good pleasure. It's simply who he is. When we can believe that, it will begin to change everything. Let's pray.